This is Indian Art History by Mash Podcast. Hello and welcome. This is Indian Art History by Mash Podcast and I am your host Ayushi. In 327 BCE, Alexander the Great of Macedonia started preparing for his military campaign into the Indian subcontinent. By this time, the first Persian Empire, that is the Achaemenid Empire of Persia, was already under his siege and gradually he would gain control of the ancient cities of Gandhar and Taxila. Now Gandhar and Taxila basically are parts of what we now know as Afghanistan and Pakistan. He came as far as River Bias in Punjab when his now very tired, homesick and traumatized army mutinied against him. He took the counsel of his journals and deemed it better for everyone to return home. Four years later, in 323 BCE, somewhere in Babylon, Alexander died. One year later, Chandragupta Maurya laid the foundation of the Mauryan Empire in Indian subcontinent. Whatever land Alexander had conquered in Persia, Afghanistan and Pakistan, he left it into the hands of his governors to rule and he himself left for the west. Till 250 BCE, Seleucus succeeded Alexander's legacy in Asia till the smaller Greek empires revolted. And for the finite amount of time in history, the northwestern parts of Indian subcontinent were flourishing under the Greeks. Naturally, during this time, the Greco-Roman styles of architecture, ornamental details, sculptures, and inscriptions were plenty in use. They formed the fabric of local culture of the area because of the reigning Greco-Roman royalty. At the same time, things were stirring in Chinese province of Kansu. A nomadic tribe, the Yuchi, were being pushed out of Kansu, and a part of the Yuchi tribe arrived in the metropolitan cities of Bactria. The Yuchi nomadic tribe were now called the Kushans. By 130 BCE, they overthrew the local Indo-Greek royalty, and by 90 BCE, they started expanding into the parts of Pakistan and Afghanistan, finally reaching Gandhar, which became a very important center of trade, commerce, and art. The Kushans built on the local Greco-Roman traditions and mixed well with the locals. Their third ruler Kanishk expanded the Kushan empire from Bactria to Mathura. Trade and mercantile exchange with Rome, Egypt, China and India enriched the silk route was also flourishing. Artisans and explorers from Greece took the silk route to central and southeast Asia to earn more profits. Gandhar held strategic importance. Now its location was merry in a way. It had control over profitable sections of silk trade entering India. As they entered India, they were met by a powerful omnipresent religion Buddhism. By this time Buddhism was going through an important change and through the patronage of the powerful Kushan king Kanishk, Buddhism reached the masses not just in the spiritual sense but also in the physical sense you remember how in the relief sculptures of bharut and sanchi stupa buddha was never represented in human form but through various and iconic representations such as through a stupa footprints throne horse lotus etc etc 
With Kushans, we see one of the first images of Buddha surfacing in human form. Since they were mightily inspired by the Greek traditions, these Buddhas drew on realism, physical beauty and poise. This also marks a shift in the practice of Buddhism from Hinayana to Mahayana. Hinayana Buddhism included the tough lifestyle and lessons taught by Buddha that was followed adroitly by the close community of monks. However, the Mahayana sect promised larger community participation. Let me break it down further. Devotees looked up to the bodhisattvas, the merciful and the kind saints who are on the edge of attaining nirvana. They were expected to help the seekers fill the gap between maya, illusion and reality. Buddha was at the forefront of this evolving network of bodhisattvas who helped his pupils and devotees to find their own paths to salvation. First, he was considered as a great teacher, free of all human ties, the one who has attained salvation because of which he was represented only in an iconic form. But as his cult grew, marking 500 years of his death, and into the first century AD, his devotees included not just the monks and nuns, but also kings, queens, merchants, and professionals of the business class. They needed a god, they needed a savior they can look up to and relate to, and in came the Kushans who had just the perfect answer. This was the first time when Buddha's image appears much like the image of the Grecian god. This happens in the ancient city of Gandhar. It was not just an important center of trade, but also a vital school of art. Greek artisans would travel to Gandhar in search of more profits and money, as the Grecian aesthetic was sort of catching up in the Kushan Empire. It is possible that the Greek artisans themselves carved the image of Buddha, taking from the images of their Hellenistic icons such as Apollo and etc. The Hellenistic Buddha has iconographic features that are a mix of Western idea of beauty and the spiritual identifiers of Buddhism of South Asian origins. Buddha's drapery is called Sangati. The body wrapping realism and the flow of Sangati is very Hellenistic in execution. But the high neck fashion in which the drapery is wrapped takes from how the monks would drape it. Buddha's face takes from the Hellenistic idea of beauty. However, the halo around his face and the body, the enlarged head Ushanisha, bun on the top of the head, elongated earlobes Urna, which is the tuft of hair, curled in between the eyebrows and Abhaya Mutra of benediction. In most cases, all are South Asian identifiers of Buddha's spiritual perfection without which you cannot distinguish Buddha from the rest. The image of Buddha also evolved from the Yaksha cult. In one of the coins from Kanishka's economy, we see a similar image of standing Buddha holding drapery in one hand and gesturing Abhya Mudra through the other hand, accompanied by Greek characters that read Buddha. On the flip side of the coin appears an image of Kanishka, holding weapons standing next to a Persian fire altar, dramatically resembling the primitive version of a comic hero taking his stride. Most of our evidence comes from the sculptures. Almost all Gandharan sculptures are made of blue-gray schist coated with mica. Schist is a metamorphic rock, which was abundant in the region at that time. Usage of this rock also becomes an important identifier of Gandharan art. There have been findings of Roman gods and goddesses in Pakistan and Afghanistan region, all made by schist. 
in the Central Museum of Lahore sits a schist sculpture of the Roman goddess of Athena or Roma. In the Freer Gallery of Art in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington sits a relief which depicts four events of Buddha's life. The birth scene in which a haloed Siddharth comes out from the side of Queen Maya's surrounded by Indra and Brahma of Hindu pantheon. In another scene, Buddha sits holding a Bhumi Sparsha Mudra. He sits calmly under the Bodhi tree amidst a host of demons and animals who try to wake him from his meditation. In the third scene, Buddha is seen blessing a group of devotees and monks. Here the wheel of law appears. But perhaps the most interesting is the scene depicting Buddha's demise. Here Buddha lies dead, laid on a couch as if sleeping serenely. This serene image of Buddha is very iconic because in a way it is contrasted by a group of Malla chieftains who are dramatically expressing grief quite visibly. In all the four scenes, Buddha appears not just with the monks but also with the lay, which sort of pinpoints the spread of Mahayana sect during this time. There have been plenty of excavations of Gandharan Buddhist art, which tells that the religious buildings were quite popular too. The stupas and monasteries of Gandharan architecture evolved too. This time around, they had a taller dome towered by tiered umbrellas and surrounded by enlarged railings. Underneath one of the similar stupas from Bhimaran Gandhar was found a reliquary. A reliquary is a box that contains relics of a person. We don't know for certain to whom this reliquary belongs, but the eclectic mix of Western motifs and Indian sentiments is quite a sight. The sides are carved like a Roman sarcophagus. It has a continuous arcade replicating Grecian arches and columns. This arcade represents Jaitya windows. Underneath the central arch stands a similar image of Buddha in Abhya Mudra of benediction. Underneath other windows stand other monks from his monastic order perhaps. Between each of these, motifs of eagles spread their wings which is very much a Grecian symbol of opulence and valor. We also see motifs of rosette alternating with rubies. The Gandharan school of art continued even after the Kushan Empire subsided. The cliffs of Bamiyan were a spectacular example of late Gandharan art. There stood three gigantic figures of standing Buddha, the tallest being approximately 175 feet high carved in stone and plastered with lime. These Buddhas bore similar identifiers of both Western and South Asian mix of aesthetics. This area in Afghanistan, which is Bamiyan, has always been a melting pot of attacks from the Mongols, Mughals and lately from the Taliban. In 2001, six months prior to the 9-11 attacks in America, the Islamic extremist group that is Taliban declared the Bamiyan Buddhas an insult to Islam. The Taliban sort of forced the local tribes to carry the explosives to the site and blew up the Buddhas that have existed for centuries prior to Islam. Now a 3D projection of the Buddha tells the local of their heritage, but during the day there are just vacant trefoil niches that once hosted the largest cultures of Buddha. The locals still lament the loss of their centuries-old heritage. The Gandhar school is important for the evolution of the image of Buddha and the philosophy of Buddhism as well. It becomes a place where both Western standards of beauty mix with the Eastern philosophy. 
This time around the 1st century AD in Gandhar can't be called occidental and can't be called oriental or perhaps can be called both. Thank you so much for listening.